Let me, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then uh, we'll jump right in uh, this evening. Lord, we, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would minister your word to our hearts uh, to think carefully, to think clearly about what your Bible teaches and does not teach. Show us those ways that we smuggle in philosophy and ideas that are not contained in your Bible and use them to change what your Bible means. I pray that you'd give us unity of heart and mind. We pray in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. Okay, so number one, tonight is our last class together this quarter. So thank you for enduring, especially you, Shelton. Thank you very much, brother, for your enduring all the our time together. Do you have both sets of notes? Christian, can you help him get notes? Okay. <laughs> Porter teaches from there. He's like, I'm his puppet. So, uh, so tonight's our last night together, and we also have a lot of content. Um, is Isaac here? He's not even here, and he asked a question. I gave him a t- Is he Isaac? Isaac is here, but he's not here. Makes sense. Anyways, I digress. There's, a, there's more stuff, the more content in your notes that we cannot cover this evening. I'm going to be skipping some things. I'll apologize in advance. I hope for and anticipate a lot of questions and some dialogue, and I'm looking forward to that. So I'm going to pause at some key points uh, because the topic that we're dealing with this evening is the idea of God's sovereignty and man's free will. Have you ever thought about that before? Are you aware of any controversy around that subject? Well, that is what we're going to be looking at this evening. Um, and, and so, yeah, so with that, my, my plan is to stop us as promptly as possible at 7.45 when our class is over, but plan on staying until youth group is over for those of you who want to keep going through some content and, and uh, asking questions. So... Letting you know up front. So where are we on our timeline? So if you look on page 93, we're moving into our final source of disagreement that ended up causing the church to assemble together and have a council. One of the things that is unique about where we're ending is that it's similar to where we began. What do I mean? Well, we began with the very first heresy, And that was actually in the Bible itself, in the Judaizers, who were tinkering with what it means to be saved. Basically, that we as humans need to do things to add to our salvation. Well, ever since then, the past 250 years, all the other heresies and controversies that we've looked at across all these weeks together have been focused on the doctrine of God, Is he triune or not? Is Jesus a created being or not? So we've focused on the doctrine of God, and then we've also focused on the incarnation. What does it mean that Jesus is truly God and truly man? So that's been the majority of our time. And so now we're ending with another doctrinal dispute, but this one is not focused on the Bible, um, what the books of the Bible are. It's not focused on God, not focused on the incarnation. This is focused on what it means to be human. How did God make us? 
and then what happened when Adam sinned, and how does what happened to Adam affect us for salvation? That's, that's the controversy. We're looking at what, it, what, what is free will in essence. That's how we would say it today, although they didn't use that language as much back then. So last week, we were introduced to the conflict to Darth Pelagius, the bad guy. Now, just by way of summary, Darth Pelagius would have been a very, very good progressive liberal living in our day and age. We saw that last time, that he taught that when Adam sinned, it didn't affect any of us, that all of our hearts are good all the time, Sin can't change our nature. Sin can't change our heart. Pelagius taught that every time we sin, we're basically like Adam in the garden, or I guess technically Eve also. And because our heart is a blank slate, we can will to do the good or will to do the evil at any given moment. And the reason Jesus died was not really to save us, just to be our example, that you can do it too. And you should be all you can be. And that God's grace is really a personal assistant. You don't, great, God's grace doesn't save, Pelagius taught. No, God's grace is an assistant that you can choose to use or not to use in order not to sin. So his idea of, is, is, is embedded in modernism, secular humanism, right? This idea that people are, are, are fundamentally good and that if we just lean into our goodness, that everything that's wrong with the world is outside of us and not inside of us. And if we can change our environment and change our circumstances, then we can achieve heaven on earth. That's the essence of what Pelagius taught. Remember, he, he went to Rome. He saw how evil it was. And so then he decided we need to be better at being good. So that's Pelagius. <laughs> Don't even hand her a microphone. I love you so much, Mandy, for being here. I actually don't know enough about that to comment it anyway. And you didn't hear what she said, so don't worry about it. But what you have to say is very important. So don't mishear me. Okay, so Darth, so that is Darth Pelagius. So he is in Rome. He starts a monastery. One thing that's interesting about him is, remember, to be a monk or a nun in those days was the highest calling, page 93, Ron, was the highest calling that we could possibly achieve back then. That was a super Christian. But what Pelagius wanted to do was for people to act like monks and nuns in their daily vocation, in their family, in uh, the uh, at the wherever they worked, whatever it was. So his motives were good. He just was a really good heretic and had a false gospel because what he did is he changed the whole reason of why Jesus had to become incarnate. Jesus did not come to save us and to atone for our sins, Pelagius taught. Jesus came to be a really good example for you. Well, the Vandals descended upon Rome. They began to sack Rome and so this guy Pelagius and his disciples flee south to North Africa where they meet the good arch nemesis Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. So this is page 97. 
He was converted in 386, down the bottom of page 97 on number 5. When he was saved, Augustine began his writing ministry. And I mentioned last time that outside, well, arguably, Augustine is the most influential Christian to exist outside of the Apostle Paul, or outside of the writers of the New Testament. We'll say it that way. So John Calvin, he's very significant. There's been some significant popes and significant patriarchs, but Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholics and Protestants all point to Augustine for their various doctrines. And so when the Reformation took place by the Protestants against the Catholic Church, they pointed to Augustine's doctrine of salvation for the reason for the Reformation. At least Luther did and others. Well, here's what he says. This is him arguing against Pelagius. So let's just learn a little bit more about him. Page 98, just want to give you a little bit of biography of this guy. Page 98. In 391, just biography, while visiting... Hippo, west of Carthage, modern-day coastal Tunisia, central North Africa, Augustine was reluctantly forced by a congregation to accept ordination as a presbyter and thereby successor to the elderly bishop Valerius. The story is pretty cool. The guy, Augustine, goes to church. Valerius had been praying for a successor for years. He didn't have one. As he's preaching, he sees Augustine standing in the back, and Augustine was well-known for his writing and a lot of his apologetic works. And so while he's preaching, he changes his sermon. I don't know what the text was, but he changes it and begins preaching to Augustine, riles up the entire congregation, and they take him by force and make him their pastor. (laughs) That does not happen very often. Number seven, Augustine's 34 years as Bishop of Hippo made him shine out as one of the brightest stars in the patristic galaxy. A preacher, practical church administrator, theologian, mystic, a man of learning, a leader of the monastic movement, a writer of many books, and a pastoral counselor. Among the early church fathers, there were few who surpassed Augustine in these roles and none who combined them all so successfully. He had no equal at all in the way he mingled passionate religious feeling with sharp and deep doctrinal thinking. To read Augustine, especially his prayers, is to have heart and mind lit up by eternity and ushered into the presence of God. Down through the centuries, no other father of the church has had so many spiritual pilgrims come and quench their soul thirst from the well of his writings. Well, that's really nice. That's what Augustine, that's who he is. Um, His most famous work is the Confessions. Have any of you read the Confessions? The Yeah, that's which one. Augustine's The Confessions is his autobiography testimony of his conversion written in prayer form. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. But but 
we're not doing a bio on Augustine. We're seeing how he takes apart the heretic Pelagius. Top of page 99, we're going to get into Augustine's biblical arguments. Here is what he said. Now, this is him reading his Bible and then saying what the Bible says. This is his view of mankind before the fall. Top of page 99. Adam, he said, the Bible says, was originally created by God, both able not to sin. This is where you get your Latin for the evening. And was able to sin. So Adam was posse non peccare, and he was posse peccare. Just Christian, those would be good tattoos on your other arm. Sleeve spiraling. You and Hannah can get matching ones. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that's none of my notes. Okay, so he, so he taught that Adam was created, not glorified, but Adam in the garden was perfect, meaning he could sin or he could not sin. And so God, number two, also made Adam with both the possibility to die and the possibility not to die. Whereas Pelagius said, God created Adam and Eve mortal to die. They were going to die anyways. That death was not a consequence of the fall. So Pelagius falsely taught. So Augustine reads his Bible and he, and he sees those truths. Let's keep going. So what are the consequences of the fall? Well, against Pelagius, citing Romans 5.12, Augustine understood that the entire human race was in Adam, seminally. So that what Adam, or yeah, what Adam did, we did in him. And if we were in him, or sorry, what Adam did, we did because we were in him. And even if we were him, we would have done the same thing that he and Adam and Eve did anyways. So contrary to Pelagius, Adam's sin and guilt were passed to every human being. Hence our need for regeneration and re Redemption. When sin happened, all of humanity was changed and now under God's wrath. We need to be rescued, Augustine taught. Go to page 100. So this reality of, of Adam's fall, our fall in him, and we sin like him, this reality serves as the foundation of Augustine's entire understanding of grace. Why does God do what he does for us? How do you define grace? Remember, what did Pelagius say? Grace is optional. You don't need it, but it's helpful. But you can be good on your own. Augustine said, no. It is necessary Grace is. Grace is necessary and essential to overcome our sin. Contrary to Pelagius, grace is not merely an optional aid to help us. No, grace must overcome us and bring us from death to life. For Augustine, we are helpless and hopeless without God's grace. So Augustine had eight consequences of the fall. This is in contrast to Pelagius. We're not going to look at all of them. Go to number two. So what are some things that happened to us 
according to Augustine reading his Bible, in the fall. Well, number two, the loss of freedom. Remember, we're moving towards the discussion of God's sovereignty and human free will and human nature. Why do we need to be born again? What does the Bible teach about those things? We're building towards that. So Augustine taught that we lost freedom. In creation, Adam had a positive inclination toward the good and love for God. Remember, Adam was created sinless. So before Genesis 3 happened, when Genesis 2 was happening, Adam was positively inclined to obey God and do good. The human will, and therefore human nature, underwent a change to a fallen state of sin. So more on that in a moment. But that's what the loss of freedom means. Augustine taught we lost freedom because the human will and human nature changed. Go down to the loss of God's grace. And remember, these are the exact opposite of Pelagius. Well, we don't lose freedom, Pelagius taught, because we're a blank slate every moment. We just have to break the habit of sin that's outside of us. No, Augustine also says that we lost God's grace. In the fall, God gives humanity over to their sin. There is a sense in which a restraining grace remains over humanity, meaning we're not as bad as we can possibly be. This divine bridle is not the positive enabling power of grace to the good, but a negative restraint of the evil. So Augustine is saying that God's grace is always present in creation with people, but it's present in different ways. So when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, his point is because we were now fallen creatures in rebellion to God, not obeying his word, which is life-giving, we were not as bad as we could possibly be. And that's God's grace that restrained everyone from just killing everyone and pure anarchy right away. Down to number four. This is number four. Down to number seven. He also taught physical death that God meant when he said in Genesis 3. After the fall, humanity is not able not to die. Do you like that double negative? That's how they talk. So we are now non posse, non mori, meaning Adam and Eve before the fall created immortal. Now they're fallen and now they die both spiritually and physically. So they died spiritually. In that moment, they ate the pomegranate. And then they were beginning to die physically as they were exiled east out of the garden. It's an inescapable rea reality. For Augustine, death was both physical and spiritual. The spiritual component was separation from God and antagonism to God. We no longer desired the good of God. It's a really important point. Really important point. Keep going to page 101. Go down to number two. Uh, four, two. So that's what happened. We've looked at in the garden how Adam was created sinless and perfect. We've looked at consequences of the fall. Now we're going to get into what Augustine taught regarding free will. 
So for Augustine, number one, the will is a faculty that every human being possesses, and it's part of the nature given to man in creation. This, the, the will is what makes us moral creatures capable of moral and moral action. In the fall, humanity retains the will for moral agency. We retain the ability to choose. So he would contrast an animal lives by instinct and is just a brute creature that goes around living by its instincts, but we have the capacity to choose to desire things, and then we our, our will, our desires, what we want, then drives us to make decisions. Instant gratification, delayed gratification, but we are always doing what we want to do, even if we don't like it in the moment. Augustine indicates we always have a free will, but we can have a good free will or an evil free will. Really important point. What does it mean to have a good free will or an evil free will? So Adam, before he fell, had a good free will. He was inclined to obey God's word. When Adam and Eve sinned, and we all sinned in him, we are born with natures that still have a will that's free. We just choose what we want to do. We're not robots. But because we now are fallen, we have an evil free will meaning we're only inclined to sin. Uh, does that make sense? We'll get there. Augustine understood free will as self-activity. Okay, that's complicated. What that means is that we are not coerced by anything external, but what we want to do. So from within inside of us, we do what we do, because we want to. Why'd you do that? I wanted to. That's why. We, we do what we want to do. That there's not a, we're, we're not a puppet on strings, whatever, I forget what that's called. But we're, yes. So we're not a puppet on a getting, we're not robots. That's, that's always the accusation. We're not robots. We do what we want. But we, remember, we either have a good free will or an evil free will, a sinful free will. So in other words, the sinner sins because he wants to sin. He chooses to sin, not because he is forced to sin. Very important point. Why do sinners sin? Because he wants to. That's why. Augustine continued, Without grace, the fallen creature lacks the ability to choose righteousness. He is in bondage to his own sinful impulses. He is free to act according to his own desires. But his desires are in bondage to his sinful impulses. So we'll develop this thought in a little bit. So contrary to Pelagius, human nature was not a blank slate after the fall, but a sinful state. And then I did not finish that sentence. <laughs> Oops. I wonder what it said. I'm going to pause there for a second. 
on Pelagius or Augustine, Adam before the fall, um, what happened in the fall, and nature of free will. Any, any clarifications or questions? Yes, yeah, Stephen. Wait a second, buddy. Um, do you think you could see having like good free will and evil free will kind of like in um, media where you have, you know, the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other? Hold that question for about 35 minutes, <laughs> which is a really good question, by the way. Any other questions, I'll dodge. Yes, Lynette. Wait, are you going ahead? What page are you on? 101. Nope, can't go there yet. <laughs> this is fun for me. Please feel free to ask more questions. <laughs> nah. So how does temptation work in this? Because ultimately we are, is it that ultimately we, have these things that we're tempted to do in the first place or like there's some part of us that wants to do this and then some outside force tempts us? So we'll answer that question in a second. Okay, I'm going to stop answering questions because apparently I'm only going to shut you guys down. But, but all those questions are going to get answered because temptation is always present to sin but with an evil free will a fallen human nature we only give in to temptation. We're only ever sinning. So there's only one angel on the shoulder, so to speak, Stephen. Okay, hold on a second. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. I may have opened that can too soon. Put the worms back in. So now Augustine's going to talk about grace and liberty. So why, what is grace then? Remember, Pelagius is teaching grace is optional to your life. You don't really need it. He taught. And it's certainly grace doesn't save you. Grace is an assistant for you to help you do better. That's what Pelagius taught. Augustine says for a sinner, this is 101 number, for a sinner to move from bondage, that's the old school word for slavery, to liberty, old school word for freedom, to move from slavery to freedom, God must um, give his grace. God must exercise his grace. Before he is redeemed, a man is not free to do what is right. Let's keep going. Why? The ability to do what is right and the desire to do what is right comes by grace through faith. So we're building towards Augustine's definition as he reads his bible of what's grace why do we need it how do we get it so augustine cited the bible notice pelagius the heretic did not cite the bible augustine cited two texts ephesians 2 8 and romans 9 16 so in ephesians 2 8 and 9 the text we looked at a number of times together here is augustine explaining right for by grace you have been saved if you just pause there that contradicts the bible does pelagius's false teaching 
that grace is optional and grace does not save you, it assists you. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, You've, by grace you have been saved. God's grace saves us. And what is the um, instrument? Through faith. By grace you've been saved through faith. We've seen this many times. And this is not your own doing. Okay, so what does this refer to? The word this, based on the grammar in the Greek, refers to this entire first sentence. All of that is from God. Grace is from God. Salvation is from God. And faith is from God. That might sound weird. We'll come back to that. But Augustine says, read your Bible. For by grace you've been saved through faith, Pelagius. This is not your own doing, Pelagius. It's the gift of God, Pelagius. Nothing you did, Pelagius. Not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Augustine cites that. Then he goes to Romans 9, 15 and 16, where the Lord says, through the Apostle Paul, verse 15, for, for the Lord says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends, it being salvation, election actually in the text. It depends not on human will or working, exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then Augustine, as on this verse, here's what he says. This is this is direct quote from him. The whole works as of salvation, belongs to God, who both makes the will of man righteous and thus prepares the will for assistance and assists it when it's prepared. They, they all talk poetically like that. So Augustine is commenting on those passages, but this, this thing is... It's the whole work of salvation belongs to God. So then God makes the will of man righteous. And when he does that, he prepares our will for assistance. And then assists our will when it's prepared. You have to chase what all the it's are in there when he's talking. It's a little confusing. Hold on. Keep going. So what God does is he makes formally unwilling sinners willing. That's like a translation of what Augustine's saying. Hey, sinner, do you want Jesus? No, thanks. Why not? I don't want to. So Augustine says God changes the sinner's will to a different kind of will, a new willingness. Hey, sinner, do you want Jesus? Yes, I do. Why? God changed my will. And now his grace is saving me and, and, and bringing me to Christ. Augustine also says, It was by the evil use of his free will that man destroyed both the free will and himself. Referring to, to Adam. So all contrary to Pelagius. Let's just keep going. 
and we'll, we'll fit these together. So we're breaking apart these pieces, and then they get fit together in this mosaic of understanding, okay, what is our will? What is our nature? What's God's sovereignty? What's our faith? How does grace work? That's where Augustine's going. So here's what Augustine taught on election and foreknowledge. Now remember, Pelagius understood election to mean that God, and here's a quote from Pelagius, that God foreknew who would be holy and immaculate by the choice of free will, think Blake Tablet. And on account, God elected them before the foundation of the world in the same foreknowledge of his in which he foreknew that they would be such. Therefore, he elected them. So that's direct quote from Pelagius, uh, late 300s, early 400s perhaps. What's he saying? He is defining foreknowledge as foreseeing, Pelagius is. And Pelagius is saying, well, here's how God saves us. God, God looks into the future, and since my heart is a blank tablet, and I'm inclined to do good or evil, and, when I, and I'm still always good, if I decide, unaided by God, because I don't need his grace, if I just freely on my own within myself decide to choose God, God sees that happen, then God plans for me to be saved. So for Pelagius, man saves himself. Man is sovereign in his salvation. For Augustine, here's a quote from him, faith itself does not precede that calling, for he, God, chooses us not because we believed, but that we might believe. It's the exact opposite, Augustine teaches. Foreknowledge of God is God foreplanning. He knows beforehand his whole plan. He's the architect who has all the plans drawn before he begins to build. That's, the, that's what the foreknowledge is here. So in other words, God, for Augustine, God does not see future faith coming from a blank slate and a free will then he calls us, no, quite the opposite, because God calls us, he's going to give us faith at some point in time, which we will then freely exercise out of our free will to be saved. More on that in a few moments. Keep going. Just let those questions percolate. So you have a writing war going on between Pelagius, and this writing war takes place, so they call another council. And the council is called in, it's the Council of Carthage of AD 418. So just pause for a moment. Think about what we've done. We've actually gone back in time, because the last uh, creed, the last thing we looked at was the Chalcedonian definition of 451. So this is actually before that. 
by a couple decades. So the Council of Carthage was convened to address Pelagius and Augustine and how the empire, the church, was being embroiled in this controversy. Well, what are we and how does God save us? So over 200 bishops came. Uh, I couldn't find whether or not Augustine was present at this. I assume he was. And when a, when, a, when a council convenes, when they write conclusions, they're called canons. They're called canons. So we're not going to look at all of them, but let me show you canon one. So here's the punchline. The Council of Carthage says that Pelagius is a heretic and vindicates the teaching of Augustine as orthodoxy. That is, this is what the Bible teaches, not Pelagius. So for example, here's some quotes from 418. So canon number one, if any man says that Adam, the first man, was created mortal, that is, born to die, so that whether he sinned or not, he would have died anyways, not as the wages of sin, but through the necessity of his nature, let him be anathema eternally cursed. That's how strongly they felt about it. They really want us to believe God did create Adam immortal and that the wages of sin really was death. Go over to page 104, canon 5, number 5. Here's another example. If any man says that the grace of justification was given to us in order that we might the more easily fulfill that which we are bound to do by the power of free will so that we could, even without grace, only not so easily, fulfill the divine commandments, let him be anathema. Again, remember anathema is the Greek word for eternally cursed. So do you see what they're saying here? They're, they're, they are... Uh, eviscerating Pelagius that the purpose of justification is that we can just be better at obeying from our own free wills and that we could do that even without grace. But if you don't have grace, it's just a bit harder. So they're, they're eternally cursing those people. Look at number six. Another one. Canon six. If any man understands the words of the apostle, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us to mean that we must acknowledge ourselves to be sinners only out of humility, but not because we actually are. Let him be anathema. Number seven is similar and as is eight, and then I'll, I'm gonna explain them. Number seven, if any man says that the saints pronounce the words of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses, not for themselves, because for them this petition is unnecessary, but for other people. And therefore it's forgive us, not me. Let him be anathema. And then the last one, number eight, Candidate, if any man says, well, the saints only pronounce these words, forgive us our trespasses out of humility and not out of literal meaning, let him be anathema. 
Okay, what's going on here? So if you look at Canon 6, 7, and 8, these three, we're getting a glimpse into the teaching of Pelagius and his disciples that was in churches. Basically, they were saying, you know the Lord's Prayer? Really beautiful words. So thankful Jesus taught us to say those things. It's just metaphor. Don't take it literally. You don't need to be forgiven of your trespasses because you haven't trespassed. You're a clean slate. So their heretical sermons would go. So they are codifying in this canon. It turns out it's actually literal. We really do need to pray for forgiveness. And it's not praying for other people's forgiveness because I don't need it, but I need it too. You see that come out here in these um, these ideas, that it was a metaphor. And you can see how false teaching has always been, well, did God really say? Turns out, yes. But then what Satan does is he says, well, that's not literal. It's just metaphorical. You don't need to repent. So I want to I pause there because that was a race through some complicated stuff, Augustine versus Pelagius, and I want to stay within the year 418, and then we're going to zoom out after this in a few moments because we're, there's some more work to do in answering the question, okay, well, what is free will? Um, is it free or not? Are we robots? Is it fatalism? How does salvation work? Why are we born again? All those things. So any questions? Pelagius, Augustine, anything that we've covered so far? Clarifications? Yes, Lynette. Hold on a second. We're recording. We need to get you on the mic. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Back to 5-1. I'm sorry I didn't answer your question. What page are we on? Page 101. 101. Got it. Okay. Before he, a man, is redeemed, a man is not free to do what is right. So would the logical conclusion of that be that no unsaved person could ever perform a right action? Kind of. How's that for a clear answer? Yeah. So, so for example, um, a person might still honor their parents, a young person. A 17-year-old might still honor their parents, but as an unbeliever, he's, he's doing it not out of faith or as an act of worship for God, and therefore it's still sin. So God is not pleased by obedience that's not done by faith because it's actually not obedience. So that, that's, what, that's what he means. So, there's, so there, in that sense, we'll, well, actually, we'll get to this. We're going to see that Hebrews teaches um, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, because, so then even when someone does something right. So if you think of a Mother Teresa who, uh, by all outward experience, uh, did tremendous good. If she did not do that by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in a response to him, all that good did no good to earn her any salvation. So, yeah, before he is redeemed, a man is not free to do what is right. And for Augustine, he's talking about obedience from a heart of faith. 
So it's the difference between an internal and external action. On the outside, it could look like it's obedience, but internally, it's not. Okay, we'll keep going. Very good question, though. Mandy. Um, so page 102. Um, one. Johnny was up there, like, uh. toggling your volume. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, it says he gives us faith, which we then exercise out of our free will. Uh-huh. Um, and so I'm just kind of curious what that means, um, because it kind of brought up the question. So uh, it, according to that statement, does that mean, mean like when God predestines us, he gives us the ability to be saved, like the ability to have faith. And then at some point we choose that, we use that ability and choose it. Or does God, like, predestine the moment that we choose that? You know, because, like, the free, free will. That is such a good question. So what you, let me, let me reframe that because it's really important. If we, so Andy had two questions. Is it A, God predestines us, and therefore he gives us this um, grace, free will to believe, and then at just some point... Um, we, we have it in our pocket, but at some point we decide to use it. Or do we not have faith or grace? I'm kind of putting some words in what you're saying. And then there's a point in time when it's, basically it all just happens to us. Augustine is saying there's a point in time in which it all happens to us. Your first question is actually semi-Pelagianism, which is what we'll get to Maybe. And it's in your notes. This was Isaac's question last time that, like, made your notes so much longer. It's a really good, that's a, that's a really good question, actually. So free will, will you get into, like, how free will plays into that moment? 100%. Because the questions you're thinking, I was thinking, and so they're at, that's the very next thing on our notes. So don't read ahead cheaters and I, I but but please keep asking questions without you reading ahead at all Johnny are you asking a question or are you checking the mic okay all right all right okay all right so here, here I'm going I'm to pause and cheat. I want to try to answer some of our questions, and then we can, um, I want to lead you through a biblical thought experiment. Okay, so we're on page 104. So I want to take a deeper dive and synthesize what Augustine is saying to a certain extent. And one of the things that... Um, we need to realize is this controversy of free will has will will from this point forward always be a recurring controversy in the church so even though pelagius was condemned as a heretic um yeah let's just let's pause for a second so right right now what we're talking about is, is not thoughts necessarily from the year 418 
it's us taking a pause in the class and to think about this, this topic of, of free will. Okay. So here's the argument I'm going to make to us about how your free will works. On page 104, number six, I'm looking at number two. Here's the, be- here's the argument I'm going to be driving towards. Under God's sovereignty, a person is free in keeping with their nature. Under God's sovereignty, a person is free in keeping with their nature. Now I have to show you from the Bible what in the world that means and what happened to us in our salvation. We're going to see why did God promise through Jeremiah and Ezekiel that there needed to be a new covenant? And why was it key to the new covenant that we need a new heart, a new spirit, and God's spirit? Why do we need those things? And then why did Jesus take those truths in John chapter 3 when he's talking with Nicodemus and Jesus summarized all that as being called born again? So let's, let's get into it. So let's talk about some terms. So what is human nature? I know that we've been dealing with it, but we haven't. Let's just, what is your nature? Your nature and your will are not the same thing. Okay, so philosophical for a second, but it's derived from the Bible, and, and, and you'll see this. So nature is what a thing is. It's the essential qualities or characteristics. It's the features that make it it. And that's in contrast to the nature of other creatures. So the essence of something. So humans have a human nature. Angels have an angelic nature. God has a divine nature. Satan has a satanic nature. Does that kind of make sense? It's what a thing is. Almost, not species, but it's what a thing is. Well, then what's the will? The will is what a person wants or desires. That's, that's key to understand. So nature is what we are, and the will is the seat of our desires, and it's usually what we, what we do. Freedom usually means the ability to act, to think, to speak without hindrance or restraint. You're not a puppet, not a robot, not being coerced from the outside that can change your will, um, or, or make you will against your will. <laughs> Be careful how I say that. But so, so freedom is, is, is you're doing what you want, basically. You're, you're living out your will. I'm going to pause there. Any questions on nature? Any questions on will? Or any questions on freedom? Clarifications. If it's not clear to you, it's not clear to anyone else in the room either. Anita, and then Lynette. So I'm kind of going off of what Lynette was asking. Just trying to give it some clarity, because I think I agree with you. But can an act be right or wrong without a will? Does that make sense? Do I need to ask a different way? (sighs) 
I'm going to say no. Because Satan. Satan tells the truth with the Bible in order to tell lies. His motivation for saying what's true taints it and twists it. So this is what's going to be important when we get to the idea. So, hu so human nature, this is going to be really important. We'll get to So you might have your question in a few minutes. So hold on to that. Lynette. here number four the concept of free will is alien you've to read ahead again oh, you said that already <laughs> no we stopped it we're, we're, we're at the top we haven't got to free will yet okay Lynette don't read ahead that's cheating you're even looking at Genevieve's notes too Okay, so free will. What's free will? I want to I get into the controversy here. So the way the beliefs about free will are often held and the way that heated conversations usually follow, here's the assumption. Unless a person has free will, they are just a robot and nothing about them is real. Their love is not real. Their choices are not real. Their faith is not real. That's usually how that conversation goes. So do you know what a straw man argument is? A straw man argument is when you're disagreeing with somebody and you take something that they don't believe or teach and it's like erecting a fake man, a fake version of their argument and arguing with that fake version of them while they're sitting there saying, I don't, I don't believe that. What are you talking about? Does that make sense? It's called a straw man argument. You're, actor, you're arguing with the wrong man, not the one a straw. Talk to the real guy. So, so when, you, when you have the conversation of free will, if when people begin to hear, well, no, wait a second, God saves me against my will? Or you hear something like this. Well, in order for Adam and Eve to really love God, it has to be freely from them. God can't contribute to that or that's forced love or something along that or even worse. I know most of you have probably heard arguments like that. That's usually how this goes. Still in number one, uh, that if somehow God violates, or if God overrides my free will, then vo God violates me and my personhood and forces me to do something against my will. That's, that's the conversations I've had. Um, that's also what I used to think. Free will, and here's the assumption. It's assumed that free will means no outside force can dictate or control or possibly even influence what I want. And if I were to go back in time, I would have the opportunity to make that decision again. I could freely choose the opposite. That's usually how the definition of free will goes when you're having a conversation with somebody. And it's often the assumption. And here's the thing. Well, let's keep going. Um, it's common for the conversation on free will to focus on the love of God, as I said. It's presumed that for love of God to be real, it must be unaided and uncoerced by God or anyone or anything else. If God tinkers in any way with my love for him, it's forced and false love. 
And in some way, it's presumed God functionally does evil to us by violating our free wills. So here's the core assumption in those ideas. The core assumptions of free will are Pelagian to the core. And because here's the thing about assumptions. An assumption means that I'm coming to something with a a preset of beliefs or there's things that I'm believing to be true, then I come to the topic. Pelagius and his views, he came with alien views that were not taken from the Bible. He came to the Bible with uh, Greek philosophy ideas and more, and he foisted them onto the Bible to change the Bible to mean different things. Augustine went to the Bible and drew out its meaning. One is called eisegesis, reading into the text. One is called exegesis, drawing out of the text. So what happens when you talk to people about free will, the fundamental beginning point is a philosophical presupposition. And many of today's modern-day Christian apologists start here with a philosophical presupposition, then they go to the Bible. So, for example, you're going to notice, and I'm going to show you this in a minute, the phrase free will is never used in the Bible. But you know what is? Slavery. The Bible says you are a slave to one of two things. So this begins to answer the questions, Lynette and Anita. You are either, according to the Apostle Paul, a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. So the conversation starts off on the wrong foot to begin with when we're talking about free will. Now, we can get to those answers, but the Bible doesn't use those categories. That's what kind of makes it confusing. So it's really important to understand what's our starting point. And I want the Bible to be our starting point, okay? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start thinking about how the Bible presents different beings in Scripture. We're going to consider these beings, consider why those beings are the way they are, and what they can do and cannot do. You'll see what I mean in a second. I know you've already read ahead in your notes, some of you further than others. This is a shout-out question. If we were just to say, who or what is the freest being in all of existence, what would you say? Say it loud. God. Jesus is God, too. Yes, so, so, so God. So, so, so we would say, you probably can ask any person that question, God is the freest being in creation, seeing as how he created all things. And, well... If you look here in the, on page 106, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Daniel, Daniel 4. Uh, here's an example of God's freedom. Uh, picking up middle verse 34. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And here it is. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven... 
and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or accusingly say to him, what have you done? So God always does everything according to his will. That's what uh, Nebuchadnezzar just said here in, in Daniel 4. Here's a shorter version, Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. So God is perfect in his freedom. Okay, so is he the freest being to ever exist? Yes, question. Is there anything God cannot do? Go against his will. Sin. Yes, there are things that God cannot do. Now, just that should stop for a second and say, wait a second. How can the one who does according to all his will and he does all that he pleases have things that he cannot do? Okay, so let's look down there. For example, James 1.3, excuse me, 1.13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He cannot be tempted, and he tempts no one. He cannot do that. Okay, Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Pop quiz, can God change? No. Okay, Hebrews 6.18. It is impossible for God to lie. Pop quiz, is it possible for God to lie? No. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Is it possible to please God if you don't have faith? No. So there are things that God cannot do, and there are things that God will not do. So if you look at number four there at the bottom, page 106, Here's the punchline. God is unable and unwilling to sin. God is unable and unwilling to sin according to the Bible. That's my synthesis of those verses. Why does God not have the ability to sin? It's against his nature. He has a perfect nature. He does not have a satanic nature. He's got a perfect nature. So God is not able to sin. It's against his nature. Can God desire to sin? No. He can't even want to do wrong based on these verses. He will not sin because he doesn't want to. And he cannot sin because he's unable to. He can't have the desire within himself. God does not possess the ability to sin because his nature is against it. God is free and keeping with his nature. He does all that he pleases. He is boundless and infinite with a perfect nature. He can't sin. He cannot will or act contrary to his nature. Questions about God and his nature. Yes and yes. And then yes. Okay, number two, one, um, God cannot be tempted with evil. Why would Satan even bother tempting Jesus if he knows that this is true? (laughs) (laughs) 
as to his humanity in the incarnation, he could be tempted. Not his divinity. Because Jesus was the last Adam. So in the same way that Satan tempted Adam in the garden in Genesis 3, he was doing the same thing to Jesus his entire life incarnate. Very good question. See previous discussion on the Chalcedonian definition. <laughs> Super good question. Yes. Okay, so um, going back kind of to like the, you were talking about like a 17-year-old can respect his parents, but it's not like honoring to God. It's not righteous. So would thinking about God's inability to sin kind of like you could view it as like there's no dark, there's only absence of light. So he's not not able to do something. He's only, like, he's being righteous. <laughs> I don't know if this is making sense, but like. Yeah, so it doesn't even, well, um, let me say this and then see if I answer your question. It doesn't even cross his mind. There's no temptation with him. He, he cannot be tempted to do evil. He cannot sin because of his perfection of his deity. It's against his nature. So that's why I say that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Right, first John somewhere. Or John. Yes. Oh yeah, Anita. Just following up, just saying that then there would be no act that could not follow from will. So in order to have an act, there has to be a will behind it. Correct. All the time. So, so even there's been an occasion or two where this has happened in my home. Go clean your room. Now, initially, you see the will of the child respond to that command. <laughs> they get tortured by the command. But they also know the consequences of not obeying the command outweigh the obedience, and therefore they, their will is to do well, really, mom's will to go clean the room because they, even though they don't like it, they know the outcome will be better, so their will is still to obey. Their, there is some coercion taking place, but they want to do it. It's, so no person, all people always do what they want to do. All people, all living beings always do what they want to do. So it would be wrong to say that an act is right or wrong because it has to be connected to a will. I don't know if we should separate it so cleanly. God wants right action from a right heart. So you could have a good heart and do the wrong thing. Um, the, the person who does um, assisted suicide has a good motive, and it's completely sinful. So um, in God's eyes for having done that thing. Um, so, so motive and act should be blended together into an Apollinarian-type way. Nerd joke for anybody who's been around. Yes, back there. That's it? No, John. Yes. Yeah, so my question oh. is along the lines of uh, the previous one, free will, and when we gain freedom. Um, to kind of tie it back, when we, you were talking about the blank slate, and my question is, is it kind of comes in 
when does the spirit, because I'm assuming that the blank slate is in that instance, like the spirit or who we are, when does the good come in and when does the bad come in? Because it sounds like in some sense we're talking about the, uh, the outside forces kind of interfering on our free will to act, like the chains that kind of bind us, but inherently we are sinful, so how does that kind of work? Do we... We'll, we'll see it in a minute. We'll, okay. we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Yeah, John. No, John. John, you just go last. What? Okay, yes. Go ahead, John. Um, so I want you to clarify what your analogy with a child a little bit. Um, the way you said it, it made it sound like the child was willing to do it because they didn't want to bear the consequence instead of doing it out of love or like a want to do that will just because they want to do the mom's or the parents will instead it's more of like a fear of the consequence that that's just the way it sounded like you said it and i know that in our case it would be more we're not doing it because it because in that in that case it would still be like a pride of self and just a fear of the consequence instead of out of love for god and because we are changed yeah well in that moment it was self-preservation <laughs> but but that's also actually why we do everything that we do we we are always seeking happiness and we're always seeking to do something that we think will make us happy or benefit us that's true for the person who commits suicide as tragic as that is they think the best thing for them their will is to end their life because they think that's the best thing for them whether or not they're thinking of pleasing god or not you know or, or something along those lines um, so, so there can be uh, forces that can coerce us in certain ways to move our decisions, but we are still choosing. So, so the, the child could still choose to say, be defiant and say, no, I don't want to. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to obey because that's their will. And that, so I don't know if... Let's keep going a little bit, and then some more questions coming. So that, that was God. So we looked at those verses, and here's what we've seen. God is the freest being in all of creation, and he is unable and unwilling to do sin. Okay, how about Satan? Let's think about him, top of page 107. Can Satan do good? No is the right answer. How do we know that? Jesus tells us in John 8, 44. Listen. You, Jesus says, are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So there's our conversation, right? What's the will of the Pharisees? They want to do Satan-like things. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Now listen to this, Jesus says, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, his own heart, his own nature. Why does Satan tell lies? It's his nature. Why does he murder? It's his nature. So based on that, we can look at other texts, but based on John 8, 44, Jesus is telling us from the beginning, Satan has been both unable and unwilling to do good. 
Just remember, how did he, what did he say to Jesus when he tempted Jesus? He was quoting Bible to Jesus. He was quoting Bible to Jesus to get Jesus to disobey God and disbelieve him. So he's telling the truth to create sin and lies. So Satan is unable and unwilling to do good. Why? It's against his nature. Is that controversial? Any questions about the devil? Yes. Uh, um, no, he fell at some point. Was Satan always like that? No, he, he fell at some point. Yeah. That was basically along the lines of my question is, is if God can't go against his own will and can't sin, he created Satan is my understanding. Um, then how did something that came from God and his will create something that fell and then did? So that's where with Adam, with Augustine that we saw, as Augustine argued that God made Adam able to sin and able not to sin. And Adam had to make a choice, and he chose to sin. Scripture doesn't tell us about what happened with Satan, but perhaps something along those lines happened with him as well, as well as the demons, who, his angels who followed him. So without getting too deep into demonology, the point we're looking at here is I want you to see that Satan is, we're looking at nature and will. God is unable and willing to sin. Satan is unable and unwilling to do good. Why? Because it's his nature and his will. Stephen. Um, so this, uh, I'm trying not to like err on the side of heresy. Um, <laughs> in, in all my questions, of course. Um, but how we are talking about God not being able to sin, I'm thinking of regret specifically in Genesis 6 verses 6 where the Lord regretted making human beings on the earth and his heart was grieved. First Samuel fifteen twenty nine, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Not a contradiction in scripture, because God is not a man, his regret is not because of any error he makes on his part. It's his grief towards the sin that took place in the days of Noah, as well as anointing Saul there for kingship. God didn't make a mistake. We have regret because we make mistakes. That verse is key to understand that God's regret is not like human regret. Good question. Mandy, last question. Um, I was just going to say, um, it's kind of more of a comment, I'll make it quick, but I think something that, at least, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of will is it's really a question of who are you worshiping in that moment, who or what are you worshiping in that moment, and so Satan can't do good, he can't will to do good, because he never acts in worship to God, and so I just kind of equate will and worship in a, in a sense. They're, they are interrelated, but they're not the same thing. Right. And that would be, that would be just important just to have that. Uh, so you can go to Romans 1 and say that all humanity worships and serves the creature rather than the creator. Why? Because they want to. That's their will. 
So, so let's keep going. Here's the, I want to give you the punchline up front. I'm going to argue that people who do the, um, we are just a, it's a robot, God, uh, in order for free will to be free, we have to basically be functional Pelagians and be able to choose contrary to choice. I'm going to show you here that all beings that exist have free wills, but it's in keeping with their nature. And a being can neither desire or act contrary to their nature. And what people who are Arminian or semi-Pelagian, what they want to do is they want to say that a human being in their fallen state can will and choose contrary to their nature. And I'm showing you the Bible doesn't teach that. That's, that's the punchline of where we're getting to. So the whole point of the new birth is you need a new heart to give you a new nature so that you have a new will and God gives you faith that you freely exercise, not as a robot, but because you want to. So God is the freest being, unable and unwilling to sin. Why? It's against his nature. Satan only does evil, cannot do good. Why? Unwilling and unable to do good. How about the glorified saints in heaven? 15 billion years from now, will you want to sin? Will you be tempted to sin? Should all be shaking your head? No. The part of the glory of heaven is that our, we will, our part of being glorified is there's no longer any sin in us that remains. Um, you can look at those verses. There's, there's no longer anything that's cursed. There's no longer anything that's unclean. Um, so saints in glory in glory, will be unable and unwilling to sin. It's part of what makes it glorious. There's no sin in the new creation. All sin and sinners have been cast into the lake of fire. And all that's fallen in us now is removed and we are complete in our glorification. So why won't we want to sin 13 trillion years from now? Because we won't want to. And even if we wanted to, we wouldn't be able to because we wouldn't have the ability because it's against our nature. Saints in glory. Any questions about them not being able to choose or will contrary to their nature? There's a question about this? Yes, go ahead. Just to clarify, that means that in heaven, like our nature will not be the same as what Adam's was before the fall. Because Adam was able to choose either way and in heaven we won't be able to choose bad. 100% correct. That's why glory is better than what Adam, because we won't have that possibility, and we will also have God dwelling within us as he is now by the Spirit. Adam pre-fall was different. Adam had the opportunity. He could either choose to sin or not sin. That was the only unique nature in all of creation, I guess maybe for Satan and demons, but the Bible doesn't speak about that. So I just want you to know that Adam did have a power to choose because that's how God made his nature. He could choose to sin or not sin. Believers, on page 108. We live in the already not yet tension of this age. So this, this is, there's, now we're going to put up some guardrails. We will never be perfectly sinless or glorified in this life because glory is for the next age. And yet, we 
are able to please God because we have new hearts, new minds, new desires, new wills, and God is pleased with us in our standing. So in one sense, we're not like Adam before the fall, where we are a blank slate. There's this already not yet tension. There's a reason Romans 7, I don't do what I want to do, and what I want to do, I don't do, and that whole tension that Paul faces. But I want you to know that, well, we'll get into unbelievers here. Here's where we need to see this. Okay, so let's, so, but does the argument make sense? I'm trying to show you from the Bible that all beings can only choose in keeping with their nature. They are free in keeping with their nature. They cannot choose contrary to their nature, to their heart, to their character. Any questions just on this concept? Trying to show you from a bunch of different verses regarding different beings in Scripture. Mandy. So, non-believers have, like, can We're only, We have not gotten to unbelievers yet. I know, but they can only choose evil. But we believers have. can, like, because that's their nature, right, or whatever. But believers, I mean, we can do good and we can do not good. So, our nature... What's our nature then? Our nature is new. So, that, so this, uh-huh. is, this, is, this is why the John chapter 3 born again new birth is, is an essential, essential. But God has created this confusing thing called sanctification. So God could have justified us the moment we were saved, which he did, and glorified us and given us new glorified bodies and we would be floating right now. We wouldn't be floating right now. That just seems cool. He could, have, he could have done that, but he didn't. He chose to create this already not yet tension where I am, I am forever perfectly justified in Jesus. I can't lose my salvation. When God sees me, he sees Jesus. But then I need to choose to obey Jesus and, and not sin. I can either dwell with my wife in an understanding manner or be a jerk. I could be harsh to my kids or it could be a kind father. And I have to make those decisions. And I'm always pleasing to God because I'm in Christ. And yet I need to make no provision for the flesh and choose to obey. This is guardrails. So how would you label our nature as believers? We have a new nature. But it's not, it's already new, but it's not yet glorified. Okay. We don't have a fallen nature. We have what the Bible calls the flesh, the old man. It's not ageism. That's that remains with us. Yes. So are we kind of like how Adam was? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but kind of. But the difference. So 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 th- this is where this was the confusing part is. So John Wesley. And Wesleyanism and Methodism, John Wesley taught that a sinner can actually achieve sinlessness in this age. And the, I don't think the Bible teaches that. That's semi-Pelagianism. You, you can't do that. Adam's nature before the fall, he could choose one or the other. But we don't have that nature. We have a born-again, regenerate nature that Adam did not have. And we have a new heart, a new spirit, God's Holy Spirit, God's word in our hearts. The Holy Spirit will never leave us nor forsake us. Um, and yet we still wrestle with sin. 
So let's keep going. We're talking about unbelievers. And then we'll take more questions. It is class ends in one minute. If you, I'm just going to keep going. Shelton, are you with me? So I'm going to keep going. If you need to leave, please feel free to go. Uh, but I do need you to go out in the hallway uh, because we're going to, I'm going to keep going here. Well, I'm going to keep going if you, if you want to stay. But I'm going to try to finish this unbeliever part to make this point. Ready? Go. So here's the question then. This is the crux of the matter. Can and will an unbeliever freely choose the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the question. Answer, no. But some Christians say yes. So I'm trying to show that a Christian cannot say, this, that the Bible doesn't allow that option. So, for example, Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. Listen to this description. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Followed the pattern of this world. Followed Satan. Look down at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and look at this, were by nature children of wrath. Not angry kids, objects of God's wrath because of our sin nature. And then the beauty of verse 4, but God. Oh, no, I skipped it. I shouldn't have said that. Look, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, all humanity, before we are saved, are dead in our trespasses, we follow Satan, we do what the desires of the body and mind are, desire, the will, and are by nature children of rash, wrath like all mankind, but God saves us in Jesus Christ. And then down it goes to Paul's whole point here, down to verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. Okay, so, so, there, so there it's pretty clear. I remember praying with a guy in a hallway in seminary, and he was a, um, he was a faithful Arminian. And here's the point I'm going to get at. In Arminianism or Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism, God cannot save you cannot pray for God to save people because that's God going against someone's will. So when we, uh, he was praying for the salvation of one of my relatives, and as a faithful Arminian, he, he spent his time praying for God to bind Satan and to take away all obstacles that might, so that it would be easier for my relative to get to choose Jesus freely, uncoerced by God. So he was being faithful. So when, but here's the thing. When he and I spoke afterwards, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He says that's a metaphor. Whereas I agree with Augustine in the Bible, I, that's spiritually true. We are spiritually dead. Hence, we need to be regenerated. Second point about unbelievers. And here's the key text of all the texts. There are many. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 7. Underlined and italicized. Paul's making an argument between flesh and spirit. And if you read his argument, to have the spirit means you're born again, and to have the flesh means you've not yet been born again by Jesus. Listen to what he says in Romans 8, 7. The mind, 
that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Why? For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That, that is the clearest verse that a unbeliever cannot and will not, is unable and unwilling to submit to God's law. So if you go down uh, number two there on middle 109, the unbeliever will not, it's the desire of the will, and cannot, an unbeliever does not have the ability to submit to God. Why is this so? It's their nature. They are by nature children of wrath. It is, so listen to this, it's always against an unbeliever's will to submit to God. They will never want to submit to him. And hypothetically speaking, if they wanted to submit to God, they could not submit. That's what Paul says in, at the end of verse 7 there. Why? Both their willing and their working to submit to God are against an unbeliever's nature. The implication is that unbelievers in hell keep their fallen nature and will remain unable and unwilling to accept the gospel. There's no possibility of salvation in hell anyways. They will continue to be at enmity with God and they will want it so. Another implication is that every unbeliever left to themselves is happy being an unbeliever and does not want to stop being an unbeliever. There is no such thing as an unbeliever who wishes to be saved, but God won't save him. You have to understand that. That is, that is an implication of Romans 8, 7. So this is so key when someone is struggling with their assurance of salvation. Unsaved people don't stress about whether or not they love Jesus. So when someone is saying, ah, I, I, I just, I don't know, know if I love Jesus. There's so much sin in my life and I just, I, I wish I loved Jesus, but I don't think I love Jesus. Dude, you love Jesus. Your desire to not be, have as much sin in your life or to have a more vibrant faith is itself that you have faith because unbelievers are dead in their trespasses and sins. So again, there's no such thing as an unbeliever who wishes to be saved and God says, nope. That's why when Romans 3, I don't even have it in here, he says that there is none who seeks after God. So when someone seems like they're seeking after God, it's because God is drawing them. And the word draw, by the way, is not woo. If you remember that sermon in the Gospel of John, it means drag. It's the same word when, when the apostles have the huge um, net of fish and they drag it ashore, it's the exact same word about God drawing people to himself. So, for example, when God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that was in keeping with Pharaoh's will. And the very thing Pharaoh wanted, in no way was Pharaoh kicking and screaming, saying, please don't do this to me. Instead, Pharaoh would have said, thank you. May I have more? It's Pharaoh hated God, and so God gave him up to his hatred to God to make Pharaoh more of what Pharaoh was. 
False converts are always seeking someone or something else, not Christ, when they falsely convert. It is a, it's a true and genuine invitation when Scripture offers whosoever will come, but the whosoever is in the Bible is the elect. They're the only ones who truly want to respond to the gospel. So hypothetically speaking, even if foreknowledge meant that God looks into the future to see who freely chooses him, unaided by God's, because man's free will is sovereign, God would see no one to save. Let me say that again. So Pelagianism and semi-Pelagians say God looks into the future, see who freely chooses him, then he elects them. And I'm saying based on Ephesians and Romans, that even if that were true, which it's not, when God looks into the future of who's going to freely choose him, there's no one he's going to see that wants to be saved, based on Romans 8, 7. So summary here of this idea. Scripture reveals that every living thing, including God, have things they will not and cannot do. This is because of their nature. What makes them them? A divine nature, a satanic nature, a fallen nature, a glorified nature. All beings are free to act within, or they're in bondage to, except God, their respective nature. So we have a free will in keeping with our nature. The texts above reveal all beings can either choose, can neither choose or act contrary to their nature. It's impossible for them to do so, including God. Positively, all beings act and will freely, in keeping with their nature, all under God's sovereignty. So the only thing that God does against our will is to give us new wills. Wills that now love him freely and from our own desires. So here's, here's a way of describing what happens when we're, when we're born. In the same way that you did not do very much work to cause yourself to be born, your mom did most of the work. In, in the same way that you didn't do that, God has to cause us to be born again. So in, in John chapter 3, when Jesus is teaching us, he, he tells Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom of God unless he's first born again. So how, do, how does this all fit together? I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, and at some point in time, God by his spirit, lets me hear the gospel message. And Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the gospel. It's a good virus. Faith is transmitted in the preaching of the gospel. And in that moment, a whole bunch of things happen. God gives me a new heart. That new heart has a new nature and a new will, and God puts faith in my heart. And so it's like a baby's first breath. So when we are born again, our first breath is, I see Jesus, I hear the gospel, and I believe. I'm not a robot that God believes for me. He's given me that faith, and now I choose freely because I have a new nature, because I want nothing less than to love and believe in Jesus. That's why the new birth is important. So the way you say it in John 3 is regeneration comes before faith. I'm born, then believe. 
semi-Pelagianism and Arminianism teaches you have faith so that you can be born again. The opposite of what Jesus teaches in in John chapter 3. I'm going to stop there, ask questions. Isaac, there's a bunch of pages on semi-Pelagianism in the back there for you. You're welcome. Um, If you, while the mic is going around, join me on page 119. And then we'll get questions going. Why are you turning to page 119? So, oh, yes. On page 119, I try to summarize the three positions. In the left column, um, second from the left is here's Pelagianism, the heresy. In the middle is semi-Pelagianism and how semi-Pelagianism answers the questions. Semi-Pelagianism is considered within the bounds of orthodoxy. Someone can hold this position and still be regenerate believer, brother and sister in Jesus Christ. On the right column is Augustinianism. If you scan down, you'll see there's a lot of Bible references there. Because these are the Bible references that that give these points. With the semi-Pelagianism, there's not Bible references because it's mainly philosophical that's brought onto the Bible and tinkers with what the Bible means, in my estimation. In my estimation. Now, semi-Pelagianism, if you read in the notes, did get condemned as a heresy at the Council of Orange in 518. Uh, But it developed... Uh, later on. So anyways, you can look at that fire questions away. Questions, comments on our nature, on free will, on the new birth. Why are we not robots? Is this fatalism and God just pulls the strings because we're all puppets? Hello? First question, yes. It's a... Acacia, right? Okay, so my question is, outside of God's, like, plan and predestined, like, desire, no one can decide or, like, say, I want to be saved outside of who he has already chosen? Correct. There's not even a slim chance? No. Okay. <laughs> there, there, and, and there's no chance because of, uh, of Romans 7, what we just read. When he looks into the future, there's nobody who would choose him. But the whole idea of looking into the future, foreknowledge means, it means it's the architecture. He's, pl- he's planned it all. This, this is where we get into the, the difficulty core of the debate. When you talk to someone who is passionately committed to the idea that God, God can't change me because if God changes me, it's not true. What I've tried to show is that it actually is true because we do believe we need to be born first, which means that someone who's not saved, they, they don't want to be saved. They're happy not being saved. That's why there's no, there's no one in the universe 
who's stressing out about God not loving them, who's not also saved, or God's drawing to him and, and, he, and he will save. So every unbeliever is happy being an unbeliever. So when people are, are sent into eternal judgment, they don't want to be in heaven. They, they will still continue. They would rather be in the lake of fire than to be, to be with Christ, uh, among other things. That's part of, part of their nature. So for the, the Augustinian view, the, the, the debate is, what is sovereign in the universe? Is God sovereign in the universe, or is man's so-called free will sovereign in the universe? In an Arminian position or semi-Pelagian position, it wants to say man's free will must be sovereign. Man is decisive in his salvation, not God. The Augustinian view is, no, God is decisive in salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and the Lord saves those whom he has chosen. Both positions agree not everybody is saved. The reason they're not saved is for different, different reasons. Because, well, in one sense, because no one wants to choose God. Would you say that's one of the reasons why hell is permanent, not temporary? Perhaps, yeah. I mean, there's, so, um, we know that the Apostle Paul tells us that it's appointed for man to uh, die once, then comes the judgment. So there is no post-mortem opportunities for salvation. Um, and, and, then, and also, by the way, Jesus didn't become an angel and die as an angel to redeem Satan and demons. He became man to redeem humanity. So it's, 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 that's why today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to make a decision for Christ because we really do decide for Christ because he caused me to be born again. Yes? So if... Um, all, like, everyone who's had the, like, debate of do I love Christ is saved, and everyone who doesn't believe doesn't want to believe, how does that relate to those who say Father, Father, and he says, I never knew you? Yes. Um, such a good question, right? Matthew seven twenty one one. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, do we cast out demons in your name? Do we do these things? Depart from me, uh, you evildoers, you workers of lawlessness. I, I never knew you. So the, the New Testament knows of a category that's fairly broad of false converts, false apostles, false teachers, false brothers, um, and then wolves. And it's, it's uh, different. They, they are, they're not regenerate. They're not saved. So whether it was for a time period or whatnot, it was somebody who said I do to Jesus, think of the parable of the soils, where it looks like there's a response to the gospel, the plant springs up, but then when something happens, they fall away. They were never regenerate to begin with. Um, and there, was no, there was no root to, this, to the, the plant, which means that when someone does have a false conversion, something other than Jesus is drawing them to something in the church, that, but they really don't um, make that they really choose not Christ. Yes, Anita. Yes, whoever's next. Steven. You, you can go, Anita. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, going all the way back to, you know, human nature, free will, and freedom, 
Um, would you say that human nature would almost fall under determinism? No. Okay. Because that's the same thing as the fatalism, right? So th this is where when, you, when, you, when we really begin to press this issue of man's responsibility and, and God's sovereignty. So, so l let's presume that I've, we've successfully read the Bible. We know that, okay, God's sovereign in salvation. He really is. And the Bible really, really presents our choices as free, meaningful, willful. We do what we want to do, all of those things. That's where those guardrails come up where it's always, well, you're just a robot. It's just determinism. It's all predestined. You don't have free choice. And that's where we have to have that idea of freedom and keeping with our, our natures. It's the, the Bible disallows us to think that we're robots or that love is disingenuous. Or that God doesn't faith for us. God doesn't love for us. We, we love him because he first loved us. It's all real and true. It's, and that's where you have to have the category of it's our nature and our wills in keeping with our nature. So we're, we... Um, some, I, I've heard it likened to the Bible. So Peter sits down and he writes 1 Peter. He wrote exactly what he wanted to write. He wouldn't change it. Well, technically, he had a guy dictate it and a guy wrote it. But so Peter writes Peter, and it's exactly what he wanted to write, and he was so happy with it, and it's exactly what the Spirit wanted to write because it's inspired. And, and, and there's, this is where mystery comes in. Uh, God is not the cause of evil. We really are free. We really do what we want to do. And yet, for the moment of salvation, it's a work of God. But then when I begin to w use that faith, I'm now cooperating with God for the rest of my life, freely, because I want to. So when I sin, it's because I really want to. And then when I don't sin, it's because I really don't want to, by God's grace. like I'm going to ask what maybe an obvious question but if we are bound to our natures how is it that God condemns those with an unbelieving to hell good question because we still are image bearers of God and because uh, the um, the rebellion it really comes down to that, that faith. Yes, they cannot choose to believe him, but they're still accountable for rebellion and wrecking his kingdom. That's, that's, that's also another crux question. How, how can that be? How can that be? Uh, but that's, that's where the, some of the mystery comes in, is God holds people accountable. He, if God does not hold people accountable, then he is... Um, violating his own character of having a, a perfectly ordered universe with him. Yeah, go ahead, Porter. Just to further clarify that, would you say it's also because the law of God is written upon all hearts? That softball is coming up here, brother. Thank you. <laughs> the law of God remains written on our hearts. So that's, that's Paul's whole argument in Romans 1, 2, and 3. It's basically showing why are people still accountable because even though we're fallen, we still retain Imago Dei, the image of God. So we know we should honor our mother and parent, or our parents, but we don't. We know we shouldn't covet, but we do. We, the moral nature is still built in, but
that's why they're uh, still accountable. Uh, Porter has credit for that awesome answer. Yes. So the difference between, in this instance, like a Christian, non-Christian, you have the will, which is what a person wants or desire. I'm kind of looking at it in steps. Say you would were to remove the outside um, restraints or hindrances, the person that was born without faith or the person that doesn't willingly go to God would continue to just basically go to those hindrances or go to those things of sin where the person that believes in God would try to direct themselves towards what is right. Yeah, there's a, there's a, uh, a moment in time occurs where we're, where we're born again. And when that, when that moment happens, my desires change. That, I mean, that's, that's what happened with me. I mean, what I, I, I knew I became a Christian because I got weirder. <laughs> I got weirder than I was before. Why would I want to be a Christian? Why would I want to go to church? I was having a good time partying. I was having a good time living my life for myself, selfishly. Um, and, and all of my pride. And then God changed me, and I wanted to go to church and sing songs that was not Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and I wanted to read my Bible. I, I, was, I had a radical change of heart. And so part of going to church was trying to figure out what happened to me. And that's, and that's yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what was helpful. So, yeah, go ahead. Just the follow-up question on that. Is it possible for someone who is not saved to gain freedom, but they're still following the ways of the world? Like, they don't have, what, what I mean is they don't have the, um, anything kind of blocking their path or their vision, but they just know what they kind of want to do, and it is not of God. Well, they, they have freedom. Think way back in the beginning of that August Augustine quote where he said, you ha either have a good free will or an evil free will. So the person who's not born again has the same type of free will as us, except that it's a slave to sin and can only sin, not a slave to righteousness. It's, it's also a good question. What else? Yes, yes. Uh, Ms. McDonald first. So, <clears throat> uh, according to Ephesians, we want to be effective and fervent in our prayers. So, and I think I've probably prayed some of these um, Armenian prayers for friends and family to be saved. So, what words would you use in praying for salvation? Yes, that's such a good question. So, I mean, we, we because of what the Bible says and what we've heard tonight, we can say, Lord, save that person, please, because God saves. Um, so that, that's what we would pray. If someone did not believe that God was sovereign in salvation, they could never say, God, please save that person, because God can't. They could only say, Lord, please bind Satan. Please remove all the obstacles. What's that? I've said that. I've said that. <laughs> well, well, it's it's not. Um, uh, 
people are not less savable because of their circumstances. People are savable because God elects them. Mm-hmm. So Satan can't prevent someone from being saved. But we just saw Ephesians. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the pattern of this world, before we got saved. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can absolutely pray for the Lord to save someone. And, and we can absolutely pray for the Lord to prevent the enemy from wrecking even more sin in that person's life, consequences, things like that. So just the constant continual prayer of God, please save so-and-so is without I, a lot of other things. I think so. I don't think that we need to like have the, the like right, like basically a functional <laughs> spell. And if we can say the right things, then God will act. God is pleased when we don't even know what to say, but we just, he knows that we want that person saved. He knows that. Mm-hmm. And so we pray because God uses our prayers to accomplish his purposes. That, that's why we pray. It's the beauty is God is, our prayers are effective, not because uh, we change God, it's because God makes our prayers effective because we pray according to his will. Mm-hmm. And so, so we can pray, Lord, please save that person. It could just be super simple. Whoever's next, yeah, go ahead. Um, this kind of had to do with the previous discussion about hell. Um, are those who go to hell condemned for their nature or for their actions? Yes. That's Paul's argument in Romans 5, I think. So remember, with, um, with sin, that's the, this notion of federal headship in the Bible. When Adam sinned, we were all in him. The family tree had not been born yet. And so when Adam sinned, in the logic of God's world, we sinned with Adam. So, and when once we were born and began to live, we sinned in practice. So we were by nature sinners and also by practice sinners. So babies that die before they're born. I believe go to heaven. But if their nature is fallen, does God just elect all of those because he knows that that's what's going to happen? Short answer, I think elect. Ch- I think all children who die are elect. Um, the reason is because when, I, I just cut have to say it because someone might hear this but not have heard us talk about this before. It's an it's important question. When David sins with Bathsheba, the punishment is that the baby ultimately dies. David, when the baby dies, says, he will not come to me, but I will go to him. And so he actually stopped mourning, got up, took a shower, and went about his life. So David knew that when he died, he'd go see the baby. When Absalom, his older son, who led the rebellion against him, when Absalom died, David mourned and mourned and mourned. And the reason, I think, is because he knew that he would not see Absalom again because Absalom was an unbeliever. So, um, but the child who died had no chance personally to sin, uh, maybe even cognitively to sin, but that child was still in Adam. So I think by God's grace, in some way, somehow of Christ's work on the cross, that, um, that, that is accredited to unbelieving children. There's a few different views on that. I take the view that all children who die are elect. Good question. Yes. Um, so my dad and I have been having these discussions for a long time. 
and he has the weirdest position I've ever heard. He's like two steps away from being Calvinist, and I want to know what you would respond to him. He believes that we are unable to choose God without God acting first. He believes that God has people that, a, a form of elect, where he only will initiate, give faith, um, change the nature of somebody, draw people when the gospel is preached, but you can reject the drawing. How would you respond to that? Dad, you're wrong. I've tried that too. I know you've tried that one too. So that's where, and maybe some of the stuff in the, the later notes that you can nerd out on later, because I know that you will. In, so for semi-Pelagianism, um, grace can be resisted. And I think, I, I personally think it's a contradiction within their system. So the, the idea is that um, for semi-Pelagians, grace does not save, grace assists. Because God cannot save me against my will. In my unregenerate nature, I have to choose him. John Wesley invented this idea of prevenient grace. That it was kind of like Mandy's question earlier, that God gives enough grace to somebody. It's in their pocket. And it's not enough that God could be charged with saving somebody, but he's kind of given a, it's the gravity helping me go down the stairs. And yet somehow in their system, someone can still, I guess hypothetically, have been predestined but resist grace and not get saved. I, I just think it's a contradiction. So I'm not entirely sure to, how to answer it other than going to scripture, which I'm sure that you do. And it's whether or not it's that pre-commitment to my will is sovereign and God can't violate my will. I think. Yes, Keisha. Okay. So our job here is to spread the gospel, talk about it to people but God already has like basically like a list of people that he's going to save. And so do we just keep going until the end of time and just share it to everyone? Is there like, cause I have a friend who I've been talking to for years that hasn't shown any inclination of wanting it, receiving it, showing interest at all. Is there a time I stop talking to her about it? Or do I just keep going until whenever? Two, two answers. Page 113. Because this is biblical truth, this is what provokes evangelism. So on page 113, what do we do with this? So I'm kind of talking about the Augustine perspective. What's, why is it significant if salvation belongs to the Lord? So I'm kind of getting to your answer, Acacia. It provokes evangelism. We do not know who God will save. We do not know when God will save, but we know that God saves. We know that Jesus, his work on the cross, really saves people. Jesus didn't die for the possibility of salvation. He actually died with people in mind. So this means that we can have confidence in our evangelism as evangelism will never fail from God's perspective. 100% of God's elect will be born again. But here's the thing. So, Keisha, this answers your question. A person might get saved when they're 9 or 90. A person can get saved 
after we die, but we know salvation will happen. We don't know when they're going to get saved. So that's why we, we, that's why we can only have hope to never give up. I forget the story. There was some guy, he's, he's, he's like in his late 80s, relatively young. He's in his late 80s. He's plowing the field or whatever he was doing. This is like in the 1800s or something. And he's plowing the field and for some reason pops into his mind a sermon he had heard from a pastor as like a six-year-old way back. And that pastor was long dead. He's some famous guy. And he remembered just some verse that pastor said and plowing with the oxen, he repented in that moment, cried out to Jesus and was saved. So the hope that we have because God saves is we don't need to manipulate people. We don't need to coerce people. We should be passionate. We can cry. We can plead. But we don't need to, um, like Nacho Libre, like sneak up and like baptize them real quick. Like we don't, we don't need to do that. We, we, it would be funny. But we, we just keep preaching the gospel and we trust the Lord. We, we trust the Lord uh, with, his, with his purposes. And I think that's why we can, we can have hope. I really do think, I think our posture ought to be one of hope and expectancy and patience. Next part of the answer. There are verses that say, don't cast your pearls before swine. Jesus did tell the disciples that if a, if a town doesn't receive you to shake the dust off your sandals and go somewhere else. So the other part of this is there can be a point in which a relationship with a person is they're so hard-hearted, it becomes really not right to be with them, like it becomes really sinful, dangerous, or something like that. Then there can be times where we have to dust our hands off it and, and walk away. But see, here's the good news. You are not the entire body of Christ. The entire body of Christ is the body of Christ. And so that person could find a track on the bathroom floor. They could, 20 years from now, um, have a friend at work who shares the gospel, and that person will get saved. Their salvation does not depend upon you. It depends upon Jesus. Ours is just to be faithful. Important question. That's why I kept going with it for a little bit. Yes, Brandon. No, Anita. I mean, meaning, yes, Anita first, not Brandon. Huh? Mine goes with that answer. Okay. <laughs> Julie, I was going to just say that Jesus says to pray for workers to go into the harvest. Great. Uh, faith comes by hearing, so you can pray for God to let them hear or put be put in a position or find the track on the bathroom floor. And um, the other one I was going to say is in First Peter, it says that a husband is one without a word. So you can pray for um, the actions of Christians to bring, to be a parent to somebody who needs Jesus. Just saying. Yep, really good, Anita. Very helpful. Right, I have kind of a story in mind of a friend. Um, I knew a guy, a friend of mine, who like grew up in kind of like a nominal Christian household, um, became a Christian, came to church here with me for years, claimed to be a believer, um, appeared to be walking in faith, um, always had struggles with faith, but was, I don't know, trying. Um, and then a point came where, I, I guess I would say he entered into sin. Um, 
and did so for a long-term stretch. And those, that was kind of the inciting incident that from there those doubts grew more and more. Um, and he like, it's kind of, I don't know, you hear like people's testimonies where they, they didn't want to become a Christian and they, they hated that idea, but they kicking and screaming were dragged into faith. This was kind of the opposite of that. It seemed like he was dragged to those doubts um, and eventually gave into those and has walked away from faith and is the only unbeliever who would call himself a Calvinist. So like he doesn't believe the Bible is true, but he knows that if it is true, he's just not one of God's elect. So my question in this weird scenario, um, that, that stretch of a few years where he was claiming to be a believer. So obviously he could come back to the faith and it could be that he has been saved all along. But if he's not, what was that stretch of time, I guess? That's such a good question, brother. I mentioned all the categories of false converts in the parable of the soils. I didn't mention the category of prodigal. So there's a reverse. There's people who become Christians and then deny Christ. There's people who are real Christians who seem like they deny Christ, go prodigal for however long and do uh, very sinful sins, but then God will bring them back. So that's where, um, just related, but just bear with me for a second, the importance of church discipline. So when someone is rooted in a family of faith that actually takes membership meaningfully and seriously, when that begins to happen, um, if there's a network of relationships, those relationships begin to, uh, to pursue in love and tears uh, a rescue mission of grace, seeing that guy go down that path of sin, and then ultimately to be disciplined by someone, which in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul calls, call, Paul calls handing over to Satan so that person's taught not to blaspheme. That's just a grace of church discipline. It's not vindictive, but it's supposed to help somebody call a sinner back. You're going wayward, you know, come back. So is this person prodigal? Maybe. Were they a false convert? Maybe. That's why we should be careful about baptizing people too quickly or too early in my Baptist understanding of things. And, and I would continue to be friends with him, and I would kind of ask some questions like, do you, do you miss Jesus? Do you, do you wish you were a Christian? Things along those lines to try to see, is there, is there in him, um, there, there was a season of, uh, I would say, prodigalness in my life early in my walk. And the thing was, I enjoyed my sin, I liked being in it, and I always felt guilty. I knew I, I knew that I was wrong. I even still called myself a Christian, but I um, denied Christ with my actions. And so God was merciful to, to bring me back. Um, but I always knew deep down. So I'd want to ask him, like, do you ever, do you feel guilty about stuff? If so, why? Yeah, something like that. So maybe he's prodigal. Other, these are all super great questions, you guys. It's a confusing topic. It's an important topic. What else? Yes, Lynette. <laughs> I, I am done. Okay, back to page 101. Okay. <laughs> 
Before he is redeemed, a man is not free to do what is right. I think we need clarification on how you're defining right because a couple things. Um, in Joshua 24, 15, where God, well, through Joshua, says, choose you this day whom you shall serve, etc., etc. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That seems to imply that they have some choice. And in Romans 2.14, even the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, seems to imply they're at least able to do some things that are right. Yeah, so maybe what would be helpful is, is removing the period and saying doing what is right in God's eyes from the right reasons. So, so like going back to the Hebrew Motive. Thing, yeah, mo motive, motive always matters. Um, but a good motive doesn't make sin not sin. We have to have the right heart and the right action. So for Joshua, he's speaking to the covenant people in that particular period of Israel's history. Uh, and they did not do what was right in God's eyes. But the unbeliever, what Porter um, mentioned earlier, is that even the unbeliever still retains the essence of God's moral law, like the Ten Commandments on their hearts. And so what Paul's not arguing is that unbelievers are saved without hearing the gospel, but he's making this contrast that the Jews who have the Bible are disobeying God and coveting stuff, but there's Gentiles who don't have the Bible but don't steal. But they're still both going to hell because they don't have faith. So, so that, so probably the way to say it better is a man is not free to do what is right in God's eyes from a right motive. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So externally, unbelieving parents, unbelieving teenager, go to bed, yes, mom, and they go to bed. That's, that is right in God's eyes but none of that is being done by grace through faith. So they're, they're, that can't, the obedience can't save them. They're still going go to go to hell. So it's really kind of two issues. Doing something right can be done objectively. Yes. But it's not necessarily a salvation. Yes. So, so I mean, just this, maybe an, another example would be, in my estimation, when... When Ro so when Romans 13 says that the government exists to enforce the good among unbelievers, what's that good? That would be biblical principles. So a government that enforces abortion, which is not the good, or same-sex marriage, not the good. Um, I, sorry, I'm going down into the weeds. Just trying to draw an example. We, we are supposed to do what is right, but from the right motive. So Augustine is arguing here that we... Another way to say this, we're slaves to sin. That's what he means. To say it in the negative, we're slaves to sin. Anita, you can keep asking questions. So my question is... Um, kind of in line with 
I have an economics minor, and one of the people we've gone over is Adam Smith. And his idea of basic economics is people will do what's in their own self-interest, in their own greed. Uh, since it's such more of a, at least in my mind, a period of time where individuals were more tied to, like, the church, like, government and church were more hand-in-hand hand a little bit. Maybe not, like, you probably could find examples, but the reason why I'm saying is, did people back then have an idea of, okay, we have the people that are, because it's sounding a lot like free will is kind of going into this, or a lot of these ideas of, you have the sinner who's born a sinner and is going to do evil, so we're going to use that in order to benefit society as a whole. And then you have the people that are good, but they still kind of wander into sin, but at the same time, they still want to do good, so they're kind of going in that direction. Am I making any sense at all? No. Yeah, that's fair. But I do want to say this, because this might answer your question, actually. This might, and because, Lynette, this ties to your question, I think. Going back to what Augustine rightly observed from the Bible, um, humans are fallen, but we, in our fallen state, still retain the image of God. We are not as bad as we can possibly be. So God's restraining grace has allowed, has not allowed for anarchy at all times, but has instead allowed governments to arise and do external, ostensible good um, to create laws that promote the good and protect people. That's a good thing. So, so we're not as bad as we can possibly be. So that's why society has progressed at a socioeconomic level for the most part, right? Ups and downs, huge sweeping statement. So I think that needs to factor into it too, where um, if we, if God removed all grace from us, Cain and Abel would have just killed each other at the same time and then humanity would have been extinguished and that was it. So then across the ages, different uh, socioeconomic and political systems and philosophies has co have come and gone and the degree to their, that they're successful is the degree to which they smuggle in biblical ideas. Does that make sense? So um, communism and socialism is an institutionalized theft. You can say something similar for taxes, but Jesus tells us to pay taxes. Property taxes is, is theft. But anyways, like there's, there's, there's ways that even humanity can kind of make these decisions that on the outside aren't as bad as they could possibly be. Yeah, that was more of what I was trying to get at because it seemed like those ideas, there was a lot of what we're kind of talking about kind of being smuggled into the basic ideas of how to form government and stuff like that. That's why I was trying to Yeah. Well, even think about other religions. So there's, this is kind of like a technical statement, a plausibility structure. That's a fancy way of saying something needs to make sense in somebody's mind and it has to make sense in their heart to make sense of the world. And so you have these other world religions, right? But what makes them plausible is that there's enough biblical ideas smuggled into them that it actually is how the world works, but there's enough lies in them, as we've seen, 
to give a false Jesus, false gospel, false cure to, to humanity's problem. Yeah, Christian. Oh, yeah, yes. So um, kind of along the line of some of these questions earlier. Um, so it is said that your name is in the book. And, of course, my question is, does, this, does that change in the book? So you're saying someone is saved at 9 and then maybe at 90. But we're also, when something is said, it's saying, well, your name is in the book. And, you know, you hear a lot of people saying, well, it, 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 it kind of brings somebody down to say, well, I know my name's not in the book, so why am I going to follow? Yeah. So how do you know that? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a really good question. So when you read, like especially in the book of Revelation, multiple books are, are referenced. There's the, and there's the Lamb's Book of Life that has names written in it of, of people who, Ephesians chapter 1, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So, so people are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but I didn't know that I was written in the Lamb's Book of Life until I was 21, and God grant me repentance. And so um, that's, how I, that's how I knew. So if I was talking to somebody who was wrestling with their faith and saying, I don't think I'm written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I would say, man, you can be. Because another way to, th another way to talk about this is if you picture a stage and we're watching a play, our experience... Um, is we're just living our lives on this, this stage, making decisions, doing what we want. And God is a director behind the scenes. Now, don't hear this as fatalism or, or a determinism. It's not trying to go there. But, I, but from our perspective, God knows who's going to be saved. We don't. So that's why I would keep pushing into this person and say, man, come to Jesus and find out that your name has already been written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And he says, I don't want to. And they'll say, Let's keep talking about the Lord then explore him together or something like that. I don't know if that answers your question. That was a good question. Good question. So if the unbeliever's nature is enslaved to sin, does not want God, does not want to choose God, what is the proper method and role of apologetics? God uses different means to bring people to salvation, but it's always the gospel. So I do suggest that people become skilled in apologetics, meaning defending the faith and answering questions. Uh, um, uh, evolution, science versus creation, like those type conversations. And it's, it's good to be versed in those because it can be helpful to dismantle the person's arguments, but you, we have to recognize that your apologetic skill does not save and your ability to persuade does not save. God's the one who saves. He just might use your good arguments. So um, I also find that it really strengthens our faith as believers to, to know different objections to the, the gospel. Is that the answer you wanted? I suppose. Okay. <laughs> yes, Mandy. This kind of goes to the previous discussion about can non-believers do right 
Um, and I was just going to say, maybe it's helpful to think of right as having two definitions. It's, it's one of those words that we can use in a lot of ways. And one definition I'd say is objectively um, matching up with the biblical way of doing things. Um, and then there's right in pleasing to God because it was done out of a heart of worship to him. That's a great way of saying it. And, yeah. And, that, and so they can do the, they can act in a way that matches with the Bible, but yeah. it's still not pleasing to God because it's not out of the correct heart. Correct. Yes. 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 So the, the, here's some of the dangers that are going on in my mind with the guardrails. What we don't want to say is that we're saved by works. Paul makes that clear. So our obedience doesn't save. We don't want to, we don't want to say that an unbeliever can please the Lord because without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. That's what the, we just read that in Hebrews. But we also want to say we're not as bad as we can possibly be. And by God's grace, he's allowed the world people to do objective good. A unbeliever still benefits from, quote unquote, obeying the Bible by not telling lies, honoring their parents, um, having, seeking to have a good marriage. There's still those, uh, those that's still there. Um, but a... A philanthropic unbeliever who uses billions of dollars to do more social good and, and, and was a perfectly, quote-unquote, obedient child, whereas you were a dirty, rotten child and rebel and all those things, is still going to go to hell. That's, I'm trying to just make sure that we stay biblical in that regard. Yeah, that's a good way to say it, Mandy. What else? Anything else? Human nature, free will born again, regeneration, big Bible words, Anita. Porter, we should just have her pass the mic. Her and Mandy can each be mic passers. That's a great idea. <laughs> um, so I kind of feel like that could just be, like every, everything will, will come right. Everything will be right. So every act every will, God will make right. Does that make sense? Well, that's true. Uh, well, actually, okay. what do you mean? So, <laughs> so an objectively right thing that a non-believer could, could do um, leads to good things because, because they're biblical things. But there's still sin in God's eyes. But they can do bad things too that will glorify God in the end. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example of what I think you're saying and tell me if this is what you're saying. Okay. The Lord used, um, what's his name? Well, anyways, the Lord used what's-his-face Babylonian king to send Nehemiah back and as a pagan funded all the rebuilding of the temple. That, that's an objective good. And he's like creating a place. But I don't know what his motive for doing that. I don't know if that relates. Artaxerxes. Can't believe I forgot that name. <laughs> it's a common mistake to forget. 
Yes. Okay. That, but that. also bad things like um, the Holocaust and people who were brought low by that and then humbled to the point of salvation would glorify God. The Holocaust being a terribly evil thing and God still gets glory out of it. So in the end, God makes all things right. Good. Yeah, he, he does by either executing justice in eternal damnation or executing justice on Jesus on the cross and then we become recipients of his grace. Okay. So, just trying to follow that line of thinking because I've just had this, this kind of ongoing conversation with Catherine Griff about <laughs> can, can a, can a non-believer do right things? And my question for her was can you separate a, white, a right thing from the, the will? So yes and no. Well, they, when an unbeliever does a right thing, they're doing it because they want to, but their motivation is for the wrong reason. So they're telling the truth, but we tell the truth not to please God. So, so y there is objective goodness that is pleasing um, no, that is in keeping with the Lord, but well, here's what we can't say. We can't say the Lord is ever pleased with an unbeliever doing the right thing because it's not the right thing because they're not doing it by faith. So they're still obeying their parents, but that does not please the Lord, and they're not saved by works. God's restraining grace allows culture to keep going. We just have to be careful. So we're, we're kind of getting tricky here with explaining what's, you know, what's good. Is it objectively good? Yes. That person jumped in front of the bus to save the person, and they died. They, they, that, that's an objective good. They did a good thing. They deserve a, 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 a hero's medal. But they're not going to be saved by that. So maybe another way to say this is I believe that there's degrees of punishment in hell. So when Jesus is giving his woes, to the cities who rejected the gospel, and it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for these cities. For example, means that we can sin in such a way to have a worse experience in the lake of fire than others, which would then also seem to give some sense of works, but not saved. So there, may, there might need to be a tension or a mystery here. I guess, I guess what are we trying to, why, why, are we, what, why are you and Catherine having this conversation in the first place? For fun. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes it's good to actually pause and say, wait, what are we trying to safeguard here? So in, this, in the salvation question, one group is trying to safeguard God's sovereignty. One group is trying to safeguard man's uh, free will. Um, across from their nature. That's what, so I guess in these questions about can someone do good, what, what answer are we looking for? What are we trying to know in, in that conversation? I guess that'd be. I, I guess the, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to define terms because ultimate good means it glorifies God. 
Right. Well, God is glorified in the damnation of sinners. Right. So, so was God glorified when Artaxerxes sent Nehemiah, Nehemiah back and gave all the money needed to rebuild the temple? I think so. But he was getting, he's getting glorified. He, he gets glory from everything in creation for its different purposes. Yeah, God also got glory when he put the three guys in the fire. Yeah. And they survived. So that yeah. was a bad thing. Yes. God got glory out. Yes. So I guess when it comes down to it, we, I always land on the part where it's like, okay, but an act is always connected to somebody's will. Somebody always did it for a reason. And yes. It's either a reason that glorifies God or it's not. And if it's not glorifying to God, even if it was good according to the world it's still condemning so it's not good and then, the then and then she comes back with but but there are acts that are good that non-believers do and i'm like yes but ultimately they're not going to heaven <laughs> yeah and that that's just that's 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 just really important to make sure that like so you know, so-and-so, are you saying that if this person does a good thing, you think they're going to be saved? Of course not. Then you're just saying the same thing from different directions. Okay. That's suitable. Yeah. Suitable. <laughs> suitable. Fine. Any, uh, anything, any other really good questions on a complex, massive topic? <laughs> 